Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Kelly Turner is the New York Times bestselling author of one of my favorite books, Radical Remission. The book summarizes her research into the radical remission of cancer when someone heals from cancer against all odds. Over the past decade, she conducted research in 10 different countries and analyzed over 1,500 cases of radical remission. Kelly is a frequent lecturer. She holds her BA from Harvard University and her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. Our conversation today is going to be one of the most important you ever listen to here at My Buddy Green. I hope you all enjoy. Kelly, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm excited to be here. Of course. So one of my favorite books, Radical Remission, and so important right now. So let's explain to people the concept of Radical Remission, what the book is about, and and how the concept evolved, and the nine keys. (laughs) Definitely. Well, Radical Remission is a remission from cancer that occurs in the absence of conventional medicine or after conventional medicine has failed. So really, I'm studying these miraculous cases of survival, right? These people who were sent home on hospice, their doctor said, we can't do any more for you. You know, you've got a month or two months to live. And yet, I found them and interviewed them 20 years later. So these are really the unicorns in the cancer field, and no one was studying them. I was counseling cancer patients at the time. I got my master's in counseling at UC Berkeley, and everybody that I was counseling was dying. Because I was in the ICU, to be fair, you know, I was working with really people, at, you know, in really dire, dire straits. But it was very depressing work, very hard work. And to sort of help me get through that time, I got my yoga teacher certification, started learning about the mind-body connection. Um, and I was reading a book by Andrew Weil called Spontaneous Healing. And that book just sort of changed everything for me. I, I, I turned the page and, and read a story about a man with stage four kidney cancer who was sent home on hospice to die and who on his own turned around his cancer and was alive 25 years later. And it was that moment that I just really, like everything in my world just froze. And I said, did that really happen? Because if so, I, not, I need to meet this man. <laughs> and I did, I did. Fast forward like three years later, I was in Tokyo in his apartment interviewing Shin Teriyama about how he'd healed 25 years earlier, and it was incredible. So these are these are the people that I'm fascinated by and that, unfortunately, science and medicine have completely ignored, dismissed them as flukes, as luck. And when I started digging into looking for published cases of this, you know, obviously I found one published case in Dr. Weil's book, but I was curious to see if these published, published cases were in the medical journals, and they were. There were over 1,000 of them in medical journals, dating all the way back to the first medical journal, you know, 1895, British Medical Journal. So if if these cases of, of what medicine calls spontaneous remission, and I call radical remission, have been around since the 1890s, um, they've actually been around since as far back as cancer has been recorded, right, in the 1300s, we have a case reported of, of spontaneous remission in the Catholic Church, in the Catholic faith. So really, for as long as cancer's been around, radical remissions have been around. Now, they don't happen every single moment, right? They're, they're not happening you know, to everyone you know, but they do happen. And they're happening in the thousands. And I, I, just, I thought they really should be studied because, you know, like I'm sure you and, and everyone else listening, I've lost loved ones to cancer. My friend died of cancer when he was 16, when I was 16. And it, it felt 
random. It felt awful, you know, that he was just suddenly diagnosed with stomach cancer for no apparent reason and did everything medicine asked of him, surgery, chemo, radiation, um, and yet still died at 16. And so when I was in my 20s at Berkeley and I said, Here's, here are people who are recovering against all odds and we're just ignoring them? <laughs> really? Anyway, so that's that's what led me to research them, and it's been 15 years, and I've analyzed over 1,500 cases, and I've traveled to 10 different countries, and man, do I love my job. <laughs> so what did you find early on? Was it that was it that person in Tokyo, or where you're, you're digging, so under, you're in the ICU, not a happy place, you start right. researching, and like there's, glimmer, there's a glimmer of light and hope, and say, wait, walk me through that process. So it was searching through um, PubMed, PubMed.com, Gov, which is a website anyone can look at. It's basically Google for medical journals. So basically that night I left the ICU. I was reading the book on my lunch break. So I went back to the ICU, kept up with my counseling, went home that night, dove right into PubMed. And that's when I found the thousand cases. And I actually didn't feel hopeful. I actually felt really pissed off. <laughs> I was really angry because I'm like, are you kidding me? There's a thousand of these cases and I've never heard of any of them for real. Are you kidding me? So I went to my professors and, well, first I did some digging in, in the library and I found this really big book by IONS. I'm sure you know the Institute of Noetic Sciences out in California. They had created a wonderful bibliography of all spontaneous remission cases ever published in medical journals. So they basically did all my homework for me. <laughs> and it's this, um, it's this book that's about four inches thick. I'm not kidding you. It weighs about 15 pounds. And I plopped it on my professor's desk and I said, I want to get my PhD in these 1,000 cases that no one is studying. And she said, you want, to, you want to get a PhD in something no one else is studying? And I said, yes. And she looked at me and she said, well, if you can get the funding, I'll advise it. <laughs> so I got the funding. I applied for a grant through, from the American Cancer Society. They were brave enough to take a risk on you know, this pioneering research, and they funded me for my PhD. So it was it was wonderful, and, and part of my thesis was traveling around the world for a year to ten different countries to find not only these radical remission survivors but also their healers. So um, that's why I ended up in Tokyo because I said I need to go see ten Shin Teriyama with my own eyes. <laughs> so what did you find? And I know you talk about in the book like there are nine keys. Right. So I wasn't setting out to. I didn't set out with any hypothesis. I sort of was hoping that they would all be doing like three or four things. <laughs> right. They were all eating green, you right. know, they were, they were all eating spinach. Right, not- <laughs> right. They were all taking shark cartilage and that's the magic bullet, right? <laughs> shark cartilage. Yeah. Um, some of them did, by the way. Um, but what I found is that everybody was doing very different things, very personalized things. And I know we're going to talk later about personalized medicine. So I was kind of getting more and more confused as the interviews went on. But about six months into the trip, I sort of zoomed out and I said, okay, what are the overall common threads here. You know, what am I starting to find? And, you know, you actually, you transcribe the interviews and you put it into the software and then you have the software sort of spit out the common threads for you. So it becomes a bit scientific in a way. It's not as objective. And what I found at the end of the year was that the people that I'd studied in depth were all doing the same nine things. They were doing many more than nine things. But, you know, like, you know, overall I have a count now of about 75 to 80 things that radical remission survivors do to try to get well. But not everybody's using all 75, but everybody is using these top nine. So those are the nine common healing factors that I found among all radical remission survivors. And that's what I put in the dissertation. And then um, and then I turned it into a book. So oh, what the, are the nine again? Yeah. So the nine are, in no particular order, uh, radically changing your diet, taking herbs and supplements, depending, and those are individualized. Um, increasing positive emotions, releasing suppressed emotions, following your intuition, deepening your spiritual connection practice, taking control of your healing process, uh, embracing social support, allowing social support to come in and help you, and then finding strong reasons for living. So those are the nine. And that's what I published in my book in 2014. But I should tell you, as a little sneak peek, that the research has continued, and cases have actually been flooding into my web uh, my website ever since the book came out. So I've continued to collect cases and continued to analyze them. 
And we now have a 10th fa- factor that's emerging. That's why you're here. I love it. I'm here. We're breaking news. Breaking news. Yeah, announced. Actually, I think this is the first time I've announced this publicly. So I'm, I'm writing a second book called Radical Hope. It'll be out next spring, and I will unveil the 10th factor, the 10th common factor. But I will tell you. Sure, we'll have you back anyway. Yeah, but it's, it's exercise. Um, ah. So we'll talk about that perhaps next spring. So what I love about this, you know, my buddy Green, we always say wellness is a blend of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being. Wow. You, you said belief. that so just why well, I remember just my body and it's all connected. Mind body green, one word, not three. And what I love about the nine, you know, ten factors, you hit every one of them. And especially what I love about your work and our our, our mutual dear friend Lisa Rankin's doing too. Yeah. Spiritual, emotional, kind of lose track of that sometimes yeah. with regards to the wellness equation. So like, let's talk about, if you were to like talk about the spiritual and emotional ones, like were you surprised? Like, what did you find there? The common thread? Well, you know, I, I had one scientist look at my work and he said, you know, if I had done this year trip, Kelly, I would have come back and I would have said diet, herbs, and reduce stress. And right. he, he would just lump them all together. And I think that was part of the benefit, I guess, of me not coming from medicine. So my PhD is in oncology social work, and my master's degree is in counseling. So coming from psychotherapy... You're empathetic. I am empathetic, <laughs> and I'm very aware of the range of our, you know, psychological world. You know, it's not just reducing stress, check, you're done. And so I think I was in a unique position to pick up on these things in my interview, you know. A lot of people would have lumped together releasing suppressed emotions with increasing positive emotions. Most people think, well, don't those aren't those just two sides to one coin? But because I'd studied psychology and psychotherapy so deeply, I knew that those weren't the same thing. And I also heard the people that I was studying talking about them differently. You know, finding ways to feel happy for at least five minutes a day and to distract yourself with your kids or your grandkids or your cats or um, you know, Stephen Colbert or something, you know, something just to get you to laugh or just get out of fear for five minutes is quite different than spending an hour of your day in in therapy dealing with trying to forgive someone who really hurt you in the past. You know, they they aren't necessarily, they of course they're related, but you can do both at the same time or you can do them separately. So they're not just one thing. So I would say that in terms of the emotional, spiritual factors, uh, you know, which there are seven of them, I really see them as seven distinct things, and and that's how the survivors that I studied talked about them. So it's not a simple simple fix. It's uh, you know seven different areas of your life. You know, why do you want to live? What are your reasons for living? What suppressed emotions do you have in your body that you need to work on letting go of? Is it just stress, or could it also be grief or trauma? or anxiety or fear of the future, which is anxiety. Um, you know, even that factor alone can get so deep. And then then you get to something like, you know, deepening your spiritual practice. And everyone does that in a very unique, unique way. But that and that of course can help you increase positive emotions and it can also help you release suppressed emotions. But it also has this unique ability to take you to a very special and awesome and immune boosting psychophysiological state. I mean, when when as researchers have when researchers study people in meditation, it's just mind-blowing what happens physiologically, right? To your hormones, to your blood levels. But also it's what's happening psychologically inside. You know, people who meditate regularly or who pray regularly have been shown to be more compassionate, more empathetic, kinder, calmer, right? So here's a practice, a spiritual connection practice that's not only strengthening your physiology, you know, increasing levels of oxytocin, serotonin, relax, and it goes on and on, which in turn leads to increased numbers of white blood cells and natural killer cells, right? So meditation is a way to improve your body, like your actual, you know, see it, touch it, taste it, smell it body, but also a way to, and this has been scientifically proven to, to improve your, your psycho, psycho-emotional life right? The way you feel, the emotions you're feeling on a day-to-day basis. So really these factors are, I think to me, each so, so deep, each one of them. We could take, we could talk an hour about each one. I have a question specifically about meditation. Did you find that all practices were equal and 
also were there like minimums? You know, you had to do a minute or was it specific to mindfulness or Vedic or Tia? Like within meditation, there's like a million different forms. Rapasana or... Right. Well, I actually was struggled with what to call this factor. And I, I landed on deepening your spiritual connection because not everybody meditated. Sure. Some people prayed. Some people gardened. Some people went running. You know, the runner's high and meditative sure. running. So... For, you know, the common thread, again, I always had to zoom back because I was interviewing males, females, old people, young people, people from China, people from Hawaii, people from South America, people from India, all walks of life um, and all types of cancer have had, have experienced radical remissions. And so not everybody's having the same sort of meditation practice. Sure. Some people aren't even meditating. So I really had to zoom back and just call it spiritual connection practice, whatever that means to you. One of the, one of the women that I've studied painting, literally making taking an hour to paint every day in her art studio is her meditation because that is how she um, reduces her thoughts, gets to a place of a calm mind, slows down her breathing, right? Any, that's her way of getting into this meditative state that we've studied in, in Well, I love what you said. I think there's a nice catch-all there. Reduce your thoughts, slow down breathing. Like there's a lot to be said just there. Just and those I think, two things. Yeah, so many people will say, oh, this meditation is better than this this form and then you need this many minutes and so on. When in reality, it's like just take a step back. Like one of my favorite quotes about food is always, and nutrition has always been Michael Pollan, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Oh, just sort that. of like simplifies so it. So simple, exactly. And, and exactly, so when you say, you know, which meditation practice is better or the best, there is no answer to that. It's whatever works for you. So there are some people, because of the way they were raised, perhaps in a very dogmatic religious family that they've since left that religion, if you try to suggest prayer to them, they will just run the other way. <laughs> if you even perhaps try to suggest meditation to them, they might say, oh, no, that reminds me too much of my childhood experience, which was traumatic for me. But if you if you instead, and I, I didn't, again, I didn't tell these people to do anything. I'm just the messenger. I'm just the researcher. So they told me what they did. But yeah, like this one woman, she she just painted for an hour every day in her studio. It it wasn't prayer to her. It wasn't it wasn't even meditation. But in our in my analysis of her case, what she was describing was reaching a meditative state. Yep. She just didn't call it that. And in terms of minimums, you know, I know some people who can do these, you know, like one minute of breath of fire and kundalini yoga, and they're there. They are reached. They have reached that altered state. Their body is, um, you know, if we were to put them, you know under scientific scrutiny, we would probably see that serotonin and relaxin and endorphins were flowing and cortisol was reducing. So for some people, it can honestly take a minute. And for other people, um, you know, it takes 20, 30, 45 minutes. But I would say on average, the radical remission survivors that I study spend um, 15, at least 15 minutes a day doing some sort of spiritual connection practice. I love it. And so some of that... We- mentioned nutrition briefly and you said something really interesting about shark so let's talk about the diet piece of this quickly too okay well that was actually in the herbs and supplements category yeah herbs and supplements we'll we'll start there then start there i was so hoping that there would be one or two you know i was honestly i went on this trip being like i bet it's going to be turkey tail i bet it's going to be the mushroom turkey tail is a type of mushroom because i had heard about that that was sort of you know, popular those days in San Francisco. So I sort of thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find it. And I, it wasn't a, a, you know, a boastful thing. I was really hoping, hoping to find an answer so that we could be done with this whole cancer thing that's ravaging the planet. But I didn't. You know, people in the people that I studied in Hawaii are eating the noni fruit. The people that I studied in the Caribbean are eating the soursop fruit. The people in Japan are. Are you know eating mushrooms, um, taking mushroom supplements, and in India they're taking Ayurvedic supplements, and everyone's taking everything, and so it, it became really hard for me to say what the common thread was, and so in the end I just said, radical remission survivors are taking herbs and supplements. Period. <laughs> now there are three categories that I was able to discern among those, and basically people who heal from cancer are, are taking supplements to help digest their food better, to help detoxify their body, meaning taking something out that shouldn't be in there. And this is all individuals. So you need to get tested, right? But some people, when they get tested, they find out they're 
you know, littered with parasites all throughout their intestines. Other people don't have parasites at all, but they have candida. Um, so they need to take, you know, an antifungal treatment. Other people have heavy metals, so they need to go through chelation. But those are three examples of things that might need to be taken out of your body that shouldn't be there. And then the third category is boosting. So putting things into your body that you're low on. That could be vitamin D. That could be any of the vitamins, B, C, D, E. Omegas, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Omega-3s, right. right? Whatever you might be low on, you know, iodine, things like that. So it's really important for this for this factor. You know, all the nice thing about the nine factors is that most of them are free or low cost. They're things you can do on your own. But this is the one of the nine that really absolutely for safety reasons must be done under the guidance of a health professional. Mm -hmm. That health professional could be the Dalai Lama's doctor, right? One of the people, Saren, in my book, healed from stage four triple negative breast cancer um, about 15 years ago, back when, you know, they didn't even really have a name for it back then. They didn't call it triple negative, but it is what she had. She ended up um, doing all the nine factors, but the final sort of piece for her that really put her over to the edge into remission was seeing the Dalai Lama's herbalist. So this is a Tibetan herbalist named Dr. Donden, and he happened to be coming through New York, and he felt her pulse for about 10 minutes, and he looked at her tongue, and he talked to her translator, and he said, you are very well. You are doing a great job. And she said, I know I'm well. I feel well. But my doctors say I'm dying. And they say, I have to have another surgery or I'm going to die. And he looked at her and he said, you are very well. My herbs will help you the last little bit. And he gave her some herbs. And that was what her body needed, her immune system needed to just go that extra little inch. Wow. Yeah. And and she, um, all of her, the symptoms that she felt, because she was very sensitive, she felt um, a list of 26 symptoms every time her cancer flared up. Um, those 26 symptoms went away for her, and then her next um, scan was clear, you know, six months later. So you've got the herb supplement piece of that, yeah. but you also have the communication piece of that, which I don't want to go unnoticed, where you have a caregiver, someone you trust, as we talk about the healer aspect, mm -hmm. saying you will be okay, yeah. and like placebo, nocebo, versus a doctor saying, you know what, doesn't look good, doesn't look good. got a couple months, time get for your, your fourth surgery, get your things in order. Versus, you're okay. Yeah, it's um, it's really powerful, the role that healers and doctors play, especially right now. And one of the people that I studied said something wonderful. They said, "Believe the diagnosis, but not the prognosis." And all of the radical remission survivors that I've studied would absolutely agree with that. You know, one of the factors, healing factors, is taking control of your health. Um, you know, there's a, there's a different way of putting that, <laughs> which is most radical missions tell their doctors to F off, basically, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to hearing the prognosis, right? So they believe the diagnosis. They're like, okay, so you're telling me I have stage four cancer. But Matthew in my book, who was diagnosed with stage four glioblastoma, which is a very serious, one, perhaps the most serious type of brain tumor that you can have, diagnosed at 28, and it was inoperable. The doctor said, you have three months. And he basically said to the doctor, F you. Um, if there's 1% that beats this, that's going to be me. You can't tell me I'm going to die of this in three months. I'm out of here. <laughs> so, you know, taking back your power from, from the power that a healer has or a doctor has, I think is really important because sometimes you can land in front of a positive healer like Dr. Donden who told Saren, you're very well. You're doing very, very well. Of course, she'd just come the week before from a doctor who said, your cancer's back and we need to have another operation and, you, you know, you need to prepare for the fact that you're going to leave your six-year-old daughter motherless here. You know, make, it's time to make some plans. So it was lucky that she had that, the difference of that experience, but, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's always important to know whether it's Western or Eastern, whether it's the most renowned surgeon in the most, you know, highly specialized field in the world versus... John of God or someone. Oh, he, he's been in a lot of trouble these days. Oh, yeah. But but like a heal, a renowned healer who's got mystical power, you know, mystical powers, whatever you want to call it. I think it's always important to note that no one's, none of these people are God or whatever you believe in. They're just humans, mm -hmm. as are you. And it goes to this idea, okay, it's about taking control of your health, but it also speaks to the emotional and spiritual connection of this ability to like say, I'm going to let go or I'm going to have, Faith. Let go in, into the unknown? 
Yeah, and be okay. It's this delicate balance of I'm taking control, but at the same time, I'm going to be okay with not knowing or it's this, it's this having some level of acceptance or asking for help. If you think like I talked about this with Lisa, it's like the first, first of the 12 steps in AA. It's like letting go and surrender. Talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is a delicate balance that Radcore mission survivors seem to have mastered. And so I, I really bow down to them. I called the factor, um, taking control of your health, but I'm thinking of renaming it in my second book, Empowering Yourself. Because there's really no way to take control. There's no way to have control, full control, over your external circumstances in life. And I think the way that radical remission survivors have found this balance you're talking about is they empower themselves when when it comes to their healing journey, meaning they they understand that no one knows you better than you. You know, no one knows you better than you. Your doctor may have a million degrees from the top universities, and so they really know surgery or chemotherapy, and let them be the expert in that. And let your acupuncturist be the expert in acupuncture when it comes to your health. But in the end, you're at the center of that wheel, and they're just spokes out there, and you're the center, and you get to pull them in however and as much as you want to because you are the expert in you. So that's something that I see radical mission survivors doing. And then on the other hand, this idea of surrender and letting go. They find a way to get there. And some people get there right away. And some people have to go through a year or two years of, you know, therapy or healers or journaling or whatever you want to want to call it to get to a place of feeling safe in the unknown. And that is a difficult thing to do. It's, you know, if you look at some of the the mystical traditions of religion, that's what they're all asking us to get to. Mm-hmm. Can you find peace in any moment, right? Even in a moment where you just heard the news, you have cancer, you have stage four cancer. You know, you, you hear about these Buddhist monks who were able to find peace while being tortured. And it's terrible. And I, I you know, I don't even like to think about it. But the fact that they they come out, they came out of that torture years later and said, you know, even in those darkest moments, they actually weren't hurting me so badly because I was able internally to just get to a place of peace. And again, my 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 personal brain has a hard time comprehending that, but I believe that what they're saying is true. And that's the awesome place that I've seen radical mission survivors get to psychologically and, and emotionally, which is finding a way to feel at peace or surrendered or or to let go of the fear and just enjoy and appreciate every moment that they have, knowing that they may have five more days or five more months or five more years, and who knows. But every moment until whenever that mysterious date is when they're going to leave this body, they are going to embrace it and soak it up. Um, and that's a you know, when, when I get to do interviews with these people, you can feel that they're in that space. And it's honestly just an honor for me to be in the presence of it. Well, when you say you can feel being in that space, and we've all felt that with people, there's a presence, there's a connection. Where, where I go, where my head goes is, okay, we're arguably in the most exciting time in wellness. Science is just killing it right now yeah. we've got genetics dna microbiome telomeres blood work can spit out all these personalized recommendations and numbers that's, numbers and that's ex- exciting because to me that's knowledge and knowledge is power and it's empowerment but there's a flip side things like energy or purpose or faith or emotional well-being you can't really measure those and you could one could yeah. argue Yet, well, we talk about that. The markers we're seeing are symptoms potentially of these other issues we can't measure. So let's talk about like can't me- like how do you think about that, and where do you think the world is going, and how do we measure that, or or do we even want to measure it? I do want to measure it. Oh, I'm such a brainy, nerdy, you know, researcher at heart. Um, I mean, I'm both. I'm I'm you know like half right brain, half left brain. But the left brain part of me really wants to learn how to measure chi and really wants to learn how to measure 
um, you know, the effects of social support or the effects of receiving love or or perceiving that you're being loved, right? I do want to measure that. And, and we're, we're starting to, right? We're starting to measure oxytocin levels before and after a hug, right? Ten seconds of hugging can significantly increase the amount of oxytocin in your bloodstream. Really? Yes. I ten, didn't know that. Ten, ten seconds. seconds. That's the, is that the minimum? Um, well, I mean, of course, they're, they're, okay. tr- they're trying to figure out what is the minimum. Okay. But, we don't uh, have minimums on meditation, but there may be a minimum on a hug. The current minimum <laughs> that's been scientifically recorded is sure. 10 seconds. Okay. Um, and, you know, someone's probably going to write into this podcast and say, it's now two seconds. Yeah. Didn't you see the latest study, <laughs> Dr. Turner? Um, so please correct me if it's if it's been, if the minimum has been dropped. But so we are starting to measure things like serotonin levels, oxytocin levels, um, telomere length, mm-hmm. right? Telomere length um, when the only mitigating factor is meditation, something like that. So we are starting to try to measure these emotional shifts or these energetic shifts or these spiritual shifts. But it's far behind where we are in terms of measuring physiological data, you know, like your genetics, um, you know, your your blood profile, your microbiome, pro- like people are starting to map the microbiome and it's, it's fantastic. But where science hopefully is going to go in 20 years is realizing, okay, so we've got a map of your microbiome. We know exactly which bacteria is in your gut right now. But what if I send you on a two-day retreat with Mind Body Green to, you know, flood your, your, your system through via emotions and via meditation and other spiritual connection practices. So what if what if we intervene for two days emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, we, re- we release the trauma, we, we get you into incredible meditative states, we work on forgiveness, we work on hugging for 10 seconds with consent. You know, what if we do that for two days and then we measure your microbiome on Monday? Hmm. It will change. It will absolutely change. I mean... One of the studies I mentioned in radical remission is, we we you know the scientists hooked people up. Um, well, they were giving them they were, to, they were hooking them up to IVs, so they were giving them chemotherapy, right? Same age group, same same you know medical history, same cancer diagnosis, same chemotherapy treatment, but randomized. Half the group got pulled over and shown comedic movies for four hours because it's a four hour drip, and four of them just were left in the waiting room to just you know whatever read their book or whatever. Well, the group that watched the comedy movies for four hours had significantly higher levels of white blood cells at, after four hours. So we're starting to do these studies that look at what is what happens when we change someone's emotions? What happens to their physiology? How can we measure that? That's what I'm excited about. And I also really want to start measuring chi. Yeah, where, where, where do you want to go next with with science, are there any interesting studies that are happening now? Because I feel like you know microbiome, bloods, all that stuff, so much amazing work happening, but not a lot on G. <laughs> not yet. It's, you know, I, I hope that in 30 years I can sit down at this table or maybe it will be a virtual table and we'll have <laughs> <laughs> virtual reality goggles on. But I hope that in 30 years we can we can sit down and say, wow, look how far research on energy has come. There are pioneers in the field right now that are working on that. Um, Shamini Jane is someone you should know about if you haven't had her on the podcast yet. Her um, nonprofit is the acronym is Chi. It's Consciousness and Health Initiative, I think. Mm. But she is literally in the laboratory, you know, bringing in these healers who are putting their chi on water and putting their chi on rats, and then she's measuring, you know, the the difference of of the water before and after, and the difference of the rats before and after. And she's got control groups, and it's it's just fascinating. So certainly that really fascinates me, and I think we need to understand. I think we need to understand that we're not just matter that just, you know, just sits here and is, right? Our microbiome is not just a static thing. Neither are our genetics, and we know that now. Right. You know, thanks to epigenetics, we realize, okay, yes, the genes we got from our parents are inherited. That's fixed. But guess what, people? Your genes don't matter if they're not turned on. Every mm. gene has a light switch on it. And what epigenetics has understood in the last 30 years is that it's our lifestyle it's our day-to-day actions choices and behaviors whether we exercise or not whether we drink water or whether we drink soda whether we eat a donut or whether we eat kale or whether we um let go of the anger that's coursing through our blood or whether we choose to feel it you know these are all choices we can make and that is what's going to impact our physiology 
So do you think we'll be in this place in the future where we're getting our microbiome tests and then we're getting our tests for chi over here and something else over there? Do you think that's in the cards in our lifetime? That would be amazing if part of your annual physical would be an energy reading, um, which of course is indicative of your emotional health. Um, if instead of them having you just do a stress test on a, on a treadmill, they had you do a meditation test to make sure you can get to that <laughs> level of meditation that we're looking for to have the optimal results. You know, because there are different, I'm sure you know, and, and I know this from personal experience, there are different levels of meditation that I can get to on any given day. And sometimes I don't get to a very healing, healthy state. You know, sometimes my meditation is just not that great. Right. I sit down and I do it for the 10 minutes. I, you know, use my little Headspace app, which I love. But my mind's just running everywhere and I'm still in my to-do list. And then there's other days where I sink right into that place of quiet and those 10 minutes feel like an hour and it's amazing. And I would love for my PCP to be able to check in with me about that and be like, so how's your meditation going? <laughs> Are you reaching that deep level that we really want you to get to every day, Kelly? Are you having trouble? Because if you're having trouble, we offer a course or here's our app. Like, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be amazing if doctors started caring about our emotional and spiritual health as much as they care about the results of your complete blood count. Right. Right. Well, do you think, if you think about wellness, if you were to like deconstruct, you know, the hierarchy of needs, Maslow, like if you were to create like your own hierarchy of needs for optimal health and well-being or radical remission, if you will, how would you sort of rank in categories? Like if you put nutrition, faith, emotional well-being, I know it's hard to generalize and you talk about, but... Is there a ranking or are they all, in your opinion, equal? And if you don't address one, it's going to impact the other? Um, this is an interesting question because my thinking on this has evolved over the last five years since the book came out. Certainly when, when the book came out, I said, at, the, at this point in the research, these are all equal. We have no idea which is more important than the others. We have no idea if they're all necessary or if only some are necessary and the others are just noise, you know, what we call in research noise. My thinking has evolved on this with the more people that I've studied, the more radical remission survivors. And what I've now come to understand is that radical remission survivors end up getting to all the nine factors, but almost always in a different order. And they always they always tackle the the factor that need, that is most urgent for them. Hmm. So for some people who their emotional life and their spiritual life might be actually be really vibrant and healthy and um, flowing you know, if to use a word from chi, but their diet might be really bad or their exposure to toxins might be really bad. And so for them, they just intuitively know, they're like, you know, I know that my diet is really unhealthy and so I'm going to start there. Or other people have this intuition. And again, it's, so the intuition, I guess, comes first because <laughs> a lot of them listen to their intuition in terms of which factor to address first. So for some people that's food and for some people they, you know, they know they have toxins in their body, maybe from a toxic workplace or toxic mold in their house. And so their first step is herbs and supplements to go get tested and then to detoxify and chelate with supplements. But I have other people um, that I've interviewed who, as soon as they were diagnosed, they were like, I know this is due to me being raped when I was 16. I just know it. And so I've got to fix, I've got to not fix this because I don't think you can really fix anything, but you can work on healing it. And so they start there and they go right to their therapist couch. Sure. So I don't think that one is more important than the other, but I do think that one is more important than the other, depending on who you are. Meaning there's one that you should start with. Right. But if I have five radical mission survivors sitting in front of me, they're probably going to start with five different factors because they have, they're five different, very in, unique individuals. Exactly. And I think that's powerful. And I, yeah. I, I, even though I'm going to say, <laughs> on one hand, I absolutely believe we're 100% unique and we, we all know what we need and it's all different. Counterintuitive to the next question I'm going to ask is, is there a catch-all for just I'm a regular, normal, young, happy, vibrant person and I'm listening and what should I do? Yeah. Are, there, are there general catch-alls for someone who's just doing okay? Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of people think, oh, well, Radical Mission is about cancer, so I don't have cancer and I don't want cancer, so I'm not going to read that book. Yikes, that's going to scare me. And what I try to tell people is, wouldn't you rather do these things now and avoid having cancer right. <laughs> instead of picking this book up after you get the diagnosis? 
And again, as a researcher, I need to be very clear. You know, we don't have the research to say whether or not these factors are preventative. At least my research, um, you know, I haven't done a randomized control trial over 50 years to show that. However, my colleagues and other researchers have done, you know, multimodal um, longitudinal studies randomized to show that each of these factors individually has been shown to help your immune system. So we have diet studies showing that, you know, if you switch to 50% fruits and vegetables in your diet, you are going to live longer, regardless of whether you have cancer or not. Like it's just, your, you know, your survival statistics are going to improve. So really these nine factors are kind of a way of living. And, and one of the reasons I know this is because the radical mission survivors that I study, they didn't just do these to get well and then went back to their old ways. They do these permanently. They make these these changes permanently. Now, sometimes they ease up on the supplements because their body changes and heals and they don't need as much, you know, detoxification as they did before. So certainly they can ease up on things, um, easing up compared to the like the year and a half on average that they really intensively do these factors. But all of them are doing these nine factors for life. And so if they're doing them for life to try to prevent a recurrence, maybe we should all do these for life to prevent the cancer in the first place. And the catch-all is just eat healthfully, make sure your body is clean by, by getting tested and making sure your supplements are on target, and then really take care of your, your mental and spiritual world. Do not dismiss it. Don't disregard it, you know, because every thought you have leads to an emotional state, and your emotional state instantaneously affects your immune system. We know this scientifically. The mind-body connection is an absolute scientific fact. Your emotional state instantly tells your immune system what to do. So if you are in fight or flight, guess what? Your immune system, it ain't working. <laughs> if you're in rest and repair mode, which means your emotions are telling you, I'm safe, I'm happy, I'm not stressed, life is good, or life is manageable, right? And, and sometimes you need to make changes in your external world to get to that emotional state, right? I know some people are living in terror and they're they're living in a, a state that's not safe, literally not safe. And so sometimes you do have to make real changes in your external circumstances in order to have a healthier emotional life. Absolutely. But it's important to do that because if you're, you know, living in terror, whether you're, you know, living in a, a war-torn country or where, whether you're living in, you know, an abusive domestic situation, doesn't matter how much kale you're eating you know it does not matter because if you're sitting there in fear and feeling unsafe all day every day you're flooding your system with so much cortisol and you're flooding your stomach with so much acid that i don't care if you have the you know the healthiest diet in the world it's not going to matter your body is saying your, your your hormones are telling your immune system you are in fight or flight mode we don't have time to fight infection or illness or cancer cells we're just in danger. And so really your body, which was designed to notice and pop cancer cells, right? That's, we have an inborn innate process here in our immune systems called natural killer cells. What I and, and Shin Teriyama, um, a gentleman in my book, he, he, he coined the term natural hugging cells and I've adopted it. But we have these natural hugging cells, natural killer cells that are designed to go and pop cancer cells. So we have them. But they're not going to do their jobs if you're living in fear or stress, you know. Right. So the emotional world is absolutely, your emotional state is absolutely critical in your body's ability to prevent and uh, remove cancer cells from your body. I love it. So you mentioned fight or flight. My head went back to the shark. Oh, yeah. You, we, so we, what yes, is I, the shark? Shark cartilage. Shark cartilage. Shark cartilage is one wacky supplement um, mm. that, you know, a small handful, like I mean, less than five people that I've that I've interviewed okay. have taken. So I, I always hesitate to. to well, it's small. But I've just never heard of it. I was like, never, that's fine. Right. And I think I, a lot of people come to this table, and I love you're, this you're, stuff. You're so. like, I've heard everything. Yeah. Right? yeah so I've, shark cartilage. Um, you know, because sharks don't get cancer, and so some people think, well, really? Yeah, sharks don't get cancer. I did not know that. Yes, you learn something every day, Jason. Um, so sharks don't get cancer. At least that's sort of the common understanding. I'm sure some amazing listener is going to write in and prove me wrong. But there is a overall belief um, and observation in the scientific world that sharks do not get cancer. And so some people um, took that a step further and said, well, let me 
let me take shark cartilage then because it, it must be something about them that's special. So let me ingest that into my body. So to all of your listeners out there, I am not telling you to do this. <laughs> um, it's not one of the most common supplements by any means that radical remission survivors are taking. So, um, and with all supplements, you need to sure. advise a health professional. Sure. But yes, when people have taken shark cartilage. They've also hung upside down for two hours a day to try to get well. Um, they've also, you know, eaten barks of trees, you know, like you wouldn't, but frog legs and crazy things that people sure. will ingest um, to try to heal their cancer. Sure. So you also have a new film, Open-Ended Ticket. A script. A script. Well, we're, it, we're, trying we're bringing to make it to it life. We're bringing it to life. We're trying to make it a film. Yes. So um, as I said before, I'm sort of half parts right brain, left brain. And actually back at Harvard in college, I majored in screenwriting. I majored, I was an English major with a special focus on screenwriting. And then I took all my electives in psychology. So I'm this sort of weird hybrid, half, half psychotherapist, half screenwriter. So actually, before I wrote the book, the script, I'd written the script. So during that year of travel, the script sort of started coming to me. And I said, I want to tell the story of Radical Mission via a, a powerful film, you know, like a, a feature film, like a sure. Hollywood film. So I wrote the script first. And uh, back then, no one, I shopped it around. No one bought it. They said, OK, so this is a film about cancer. And I said, no, 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 it's about healing. They said, no, 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 OK, it's a film about cancer with two female leads. They're like, no one's going to buy, you know, no, no one's going to buy a ticket to this movie. Well, thanks to the Me Too movement and thanks to places like Mind Body Green that have really expanded this idea of wellness and gotten people excited about healing. Now, in 2019, there's, there's some real excitement around this script. And um, it was just a finalist for the um, Sundance Screenwriters Lab. And we're taking it to the Cannes Film Market this May. And hopefully we will find... A buyer for it. That's huge. Yeah. You will. I will. <laughs> you I definitely will. will that. I will. Um, so yeah, so the film's happening, hopefully. And I've got this new book coming out, Radical Hope, next next spring. And also, uh, that's also the first time I'm announcing this publicly, but I'm doing a docuseries based on Radical Mission. And that will come out um, just before the book comes out. I've, you know, because of my my background in screenwriting and just my love of visual storytelling, I've for a while now wanted to bring the story of Radical Mission to visual life. And um, luckily my my new publisher, Hay House, is supportive of that. So they're helping me um, create the docuseries that I've wanted to create for many, many years now. I love that. So I always close with the same, same couple questions. What keeps you up at night? And what has you excited every morning? Mm. Those are really good questions. What keeps me up at night is how can we study these people better? How can I do a better job? And the answer that I come up with is I need help. I need helpers. Um, I'm just one person and I can't study. I can't find and study all of the radical mission survivors on this planet by myself. So luckily, um, you know, the helpers are starting to come to me, which is great. Um, so that's wonderful. And what, what, the second question about the morning, what jumps excites me out of bed, you, yeah. excites me? My children, <laughs> honestly, they, uh, I have two wonderful children, very small, tiny. And so they do, they literally get me out of bed in the morning. Um, they, you know, they can now walk in, into my room. I don't have to go to the cribs anymore, but um, they're still, you know, they're both five and under. So they come to my bed and, and you know, they just, they wake me up with, these totally innocent smiles and, you know, they don't have a to-do list running through. <laughs> they don't, you know, they don't wake up and check their phone and see the 10 emails that ca came in and their mind doesn't start running right away. They just come in and they say, good morning, mommy. <laughs> and that's a reminder to me of how I think we should all start our days. Just without to-dos in our head, without fear, just with an open mind of all the wonderful delights that, that could happen to us this day. That's how my children, for now, start their day. I'm sure once they get a little more socialized and teased and bullied, and oh God, I'm so worried <laughs> that, that they will um, change. But for the moment, they're very innocent and not fearful about the world and about their days. And it's a really beautiful reminder to me that 
wow, I wish, like, let me do what I can to get into that state and live my day that way. Well, that's what, that's maybe perhaps a little too personal. But. No, I love it. Amen to that. So last question, if you could go back in time. I thought those were the last well, questions. I, one more, one more. Okay. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice at the beginning of this huge project, what advice would that be? It's all going to work out so much better than you thought. You know, it was very scary back then. I felt like I was the only person in the world trying to find these people and study them. And I was so worried that I was going down a rabbit hole that wasn't going to lead to any answers for me and was just going to lead to student debt. And, you know, even as I was writing the book proposal for Radical Remission, it was a really scary time for me because I had all these student loans and I wasn't working. I didn't have, I, I could have been working as a social worker in a hospital. And I instead took this big risk financially and spent two months, three months writing this book proposal that I didn't know if anyone would ever pick up or read. And that was a really angst-filled time. Every, I literally had to go to war in my mind every morning when I sat down to work on it because my mind would say, what are you doing? This is never going to work. No one's going to buy this book and you're just going to be in more and more debt. And then and then, and then you're just going to go back to the job that you should have applied for last week. You know, like I had this like little grouch on my shoulder that was so scared for me. And luckily, I had this other, you know, angel on my other shoulder saying, your heart wants to share this work with the world. And you didn't do this dissertation for it to end up, you know, in an archive at Berkeley that no <laughs> one's ever going to read. <laughs> so for the sake of the cancer patients who died in that ICU, write this book. And if no publisher buys it, then self-publish it and put it up as a PDF. You know, like, <laughs> thank God for the internet. And that was my plan. I was like, well, if, if no publisher ever picks up this book, I'll put it up as a PDF for free and I'll just be, you know, four more months in debt and oh well. And so if I could go back to that, that girl, you know, this was 15 years ago, um, young woman, I would say, it's all going to be okay. We'll close on that. <laughs> Dr. Kelly Turner, thanks so much. Thanks for all that you do. Thanks, guys, for listening. Thank you.